Hey, industrial marketing friends from Gorilla76, the industrial marketing agency. This is the Manufacturing Marketer Podcast, a show dedicated to all the small marketing teams working at companies that make stuff. My name is Brendan Forrest, but I won't be your host today. We're going to do something a little different with the show and share the audio from a webinar that JamCon at Sixth Sense hosted titled Lessons Traditional Manufacturing Marketers Can Learn from Industrial Startups. In this webinar, Gorilla76's own strategy director, Grace Wright, and Colab Software CMO, MJ Smith, help you learn industrial startup tactics from real-world examples, get actionable insights into campaign optimization, and then they also host a really great Q&A portion at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy. Here's to the webinar. Welcome, everyone, officially to this webinar on lessons traditional manufacturing marketers can learn from industrial startups. Uh, I'm Jam Khan. I'm the SVP of product marketing at Sixth Sense. Uh, what does Sixth Sense do? Well, the quick version is that we tell companies when their customers are ready to buy, and we help identify those customers so that sales and marketing teams can align on the best accounts to focus their attention on. Uh, we've been seeing a lot of interest from marketing teams in the manufacturing sectors that are looking to exert more of their influence on, on pipeline. So what we want to do is bring together some industry experts you know, that are you know, face a lot of similar challenges amongst manufacturers in the marketing space, uh, things like shifts in role expectations, tying their efforts more to numbers. Uh, and we thought we'd look at industrial startups. Uh, they're at the forefront of this shift, and we talk about some really practical tactics to adopt. Uh, so I'm really excited to introduce our, our guest today. Grace Wright is the strategy director at Gorilla76 an agency that focuses on marketing teams in the, in the manufacturing sector. MJ Smith is a CMO of Colab. I'm going to let them introduce themselves more formally in a moment here, but I think we have a really nice combination of practitioner and advisor experience, which should be great for, for all of you like joining in. Uh, so um, Grace, um, if you want to just expand on that and formally introduce yourself, would be great. Yeah, happy to do so. Um, yeah, Grace Wright, Strategy Director here at Girls76. Um, we help B2B manufacturers and industrial startups establish revenue-focused marketing programs. I personally lead the strategy team and am essentially responsible for kind of three things. So are our clients seeing results from the programs we're running? Are we deploying our services uh, you know, profitably into a consistent quality? Um, and does my team feel supported? <laughs> in their duty to kind of deliver results for clients. So that's kind of what I do in a nutshell. I think that's top of mind for just about anybody in the marketing department, but would be, uh, love to you know expand more on that as you get into this and in, in the nuances of this in the, in the manufacturing sector. Uh, MJ, over to you. Yeah, so uh, MJ Smith, I am CMO of Colab Software. So we are a industrial startup and we're building what I think I can confidently now say is the best way to review CAD and review new product designs. Um, so we're ultimately trying to help mechanical engineering teams that are building really complex products deliver life-changing products to market years sooner. Uh, at Colab, I lead all things marketing and I also lead the sales development team. Um, and excited about this topic in particular because uh, before that, I spent six years in product management and marketing roles at uh, industrial manufacturing companies, largely in the uh, healthcare manufacturing and like safety device manufacturing space. Awesome. Well, they always they keep saying software is is eating the world, and now AI is eating software. But behind all of that is actual equipment that makes things like happen. And so having you know. 
uh, you know, having the perspective of what go-to-market means for manufacturing. I think it's it, it's it's never going to be out of style or out of date. Uh, a few housekeeping items, guys. There's a Q&A tab. Uh, go ahead and post your questions in there, and we're definitely going to uh, make sure we address all of them at the end of this discussion. Um, during the panel, um, be a little harder for, for our panelists, so we want to keep them focused on the, on the conversation. But do use that little Q&A tab. Uh, and keep the chat lively and going as well. But if you have specific questions, it'll be much easier for us to collect them all on that Q&A tab versus possibly losing them in the chat. Uh, so let, let's let's start with this discussion. Um, like marketers and manufacturing right now are facing a lot of challenges between rifts because of the economy, changing role expectations. Um, you know, wanted to start off with just pairing what you two are experiencing from both like the agency and the in-house side of things for just marketing in the manufacturing uh, sector and uh, start with you, MJ, give us some perspective. Yeah, so um, I would say starting from COVID until very, very recently, there was like one single predominating message in the market, which is the supply supply chain crisis is screwing up everything. So um, that was all anyone wanted to talk about for a really long time. I would say that's kind of starting to die down right now. Um, and the focus is shifting back to what I would say is a more nuanced market landscape where you have different predominating trends in different subsets of the manufacturing world. So in automotive, for example, the supply chain crisis caused them all to have a huge backlog of orders that I think they are kind of still working through. So that's that's impacting how they're looking at their business. And then um, we're actually seeing this year in, in agriculture uh, manufacturing, uh, the prices of crops are super high, which is uh, generating a lot of like cash flow for them. So um, it's a good time to be in that industry, for example. And, and I think there's, um, there's a lot uh, more nuance and, and differentiation across different subsegments uh, now that the the just tailwinds of that uh, supply chain crisis are, are starting to die down. Yeah, and really good observation from from Brendan there in the chat that you know the the supply chain comes at the forefront, and the rest of us as consumers feel all of it like downstream, and then that impacts like our purchasing decisions, which impacts both B two C and, and B two B. Uh, but you know, to to get a good economic indicator, manufacturing is always sort of at the at the forefront. And I guess you you probably see that a lot, have working with so many different uh, clients, Grace. So, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I I think manufacturing seems really niched down to like other marketers I speak to about Gorilla, but like in reality, we work with like a really wide array of companies, so like cable assembly suppliers and generator manufacturers, oven manufacturers, rail gear manufacturers, um, and the list goes on and on and on. And so each of those companies operates in a very unique environment of you know, buyers, sellers, suppliers, constraints. So it's really tough for me sometimes to like make sweeping statements about trends I would see across the board. I think supply is maybe like the one exception to that, especially if you're looking at like 2020 into early 2022. Like I remember being on a video shoot for a client. So like I was on site um, in February of 2022 and like I saw the entire sales team start, you know, walking fast like and stressed through the halls and everything and um you know i was like what's going on and it just it turned out like a strike halfway across the world had sent the supply chain into you know free fall and everyone was trying to kind of figure out okay how do we talk to customers about this um and you know i saw that for different clients manifesting in different ways but 2023 like mj said um you know it's really not as salient in discussions with our clients 
um, you know, I, I speak with a lot of leadership teams and kind of early strategy discussions. And, um, you know, this probably isn't going to be the most exciting <laughs> trend to talk about. But um, what I see with a lot of uh, companies that I speak with is just some version of, you know, we'll talk about like, you know, what does marketing look like for you today? It's like, well, they pretty much assist with trade shows and the occasional webinar and making the website sound nice and, you know, like the mugs and pens department essentially. And then it's like, okay, well, what's currently working for you? And they're like, well, all of our deals are coming from, you know, brute force outbound or referrals. And so, you know, the the challenge regardless of whether it's a startup or, um, you know, more of a quote unquote traditional manufacturer that's been around 30, 70 years, it's basically like starting from the ground up. It's a lot closer to starting from zero than you would think. So I think for a lot of, you know, now that we're kind of in the wake of the supply chain crisis and all of that, I think it's for a lot of traditional manufacturers and startups alike, it's kind of rediscovering and repackaging whatever, helped them carve out a niche whenever they did start a company and getting that out in front of the right people. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a, become a bit of a, a played out trope to look at like COVID as this inflection point, but there's always, um, you know, in different economic, in different manufacturing sectors, something that impacts that particular sector. I think what maybe was a little bit unique, uh, what forced the change with COVID is like, everyone got hit by the same thing all at once. So it wasn't isolated to a particular sector across all. And we tend to use, you're right, manufacturing very broadly, but there's automotive manufacturing and cable supply. And uh, there's not really been a moment in recent memory where everyone was impacted by the exact like, same thing, uh, which probably forced a little bit of like, hey, well, you know, we all have to like rethink this because we can't just be you know, events driven because there's no events. Now, now what do we do? Uh, so let's get into the nuts and bolts of things then. Like, what are traditional manufacturers getting right? And what are some practices they could benefit maybe from adopting when they look at like how startups are operating that maybe are coming in with a with a fresh perspective? And uh maybe Grace, keep us going there. Happy to. Um I, I think anytime you hear me talk or post something on LinkedIn, it's really important to kind of put it in context. Like I work in an agency and so I exclusively talk to manufacturing and startups that are struggling with their marketing. So there's some self-selection bias in kind of who I interact with. Um, you know, if they had it all figured out, they wouldn't elect their time, like to spend their time speaking to me. So, um, you know, when I say that manufacturers are struggling with something, I'm not trying to make a broad claim that every manufacturer struggles with that. There are plenty out there that are, you know, way past being the mugs and pens department. I just happen to speak with a lot of folks who are kind of stuck in that space. So the challenges I hear across the board are pretty similar, um, kind of across both traditional and startup companies. Um, It's what I said before, you know, with traditional manufacturers, it's, uh, you know, all our deals are coming from referrals and outbound. Um, Marketing does trade shows, makes the website look good, helps with whatever sales needs. Um, and they kind of come to us because they have some type of sales goals or company level goals that are going to break their current system. Um, they want to put marketing more in the driver's seat, make them more accountable to real results. And then with startup companies that I've spoken with, it's a lot of, um, companies that have pretty well proven product market fit. They've kind of gone grown through outbound efforts, referrals, um, you know, solved the 
the sticky problem of like actually having a product that does what they say it does. Um, but they need marketing to scale that message and, and awareness to the right people. And so um, also one thing, this isn't necessarily something that people tell me they're struggling with, but when I look at a lot of websites, it's a lot of like corporate Ipsum. Like I, when I'm beginning to work with a company, like I'll read like hundreds of pages of content and all their sales decks and I still can't tell them what they do. And that's a huge problem. Um, so it, it, I, I guess like my plan of attack across the board really comes down to like, you know, deep discovery and like distilling of the message, which is something everyone <laughs> needs a lot of help with. Um, but then, then it really comes down to like getting points on the board as quickly as possible. So um, distilling the you know core what we sell to whom into minimum viable messaging, disseminating that out to the audience. Um, you know, getting some points on the board, getting early messaging out to get real audience feedback while we continue to refine and perfect in the in the background. So you know we aren't taking a million years to get the perfect setup, perfect campaigns, perfect um, messaging. So starting quickly and starting small, testing. Uh, things, figuring out what works and then kind of scaling. Um, and then I, I'm i just going to get into this, I guess, while <laughs> I'm still talking. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's starting and, and getting some wins, but then it's also slowly kind of eating the elephant one bite at a time. So like there are some fundamentals you have to get right. Like um, I have a client I've been working with for a while. It's, you know, I'm starting to uh, get some really good wins in terms of like inbound demo requests and everything, but the way deals are being tracked through the CRM is a little bit messy. I'm slowly tackling things like that, um, you know, kind of week by week, uh, but kind of getting some real tangible, measurable wins and then biting off the things that are going to make you a much happier marketer and <laughs> uh, a year from now. That's great, great perspective, Grace. And I guess, um, you know, an example of you know, uh, a company that's doing a lot more than trade shows and has, you know, marketing's influence on, on Pipeline, I'm sure would be, be collab. So I'm sure you've got something to say about this, MJ. Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I think the original question was kind of like, what are what are startups doing that, that manufacturers can learn from? And um, also like maybe what some manufacturers do that, that startups can learn from. So um, I think in general, a lot of people would consider startups to be like better at marketing than uh, manufacturing companies. But one thing that I've noticed is that especially large manufacturing companies, they are exceptionally good at voice of the customer. And um, usually they have built that muscle because of the need to feed customer insights into the product development process. Um, I mentioned at the top of this call that uh, my background is actually marketing and product in the industrial space. I'd actually be curious in the chat if anybody who's on this webinar right now is also in a hybrid marketing and product role. But the fact of the matter is it's really expensive to build a hardware product, especially like a big complex hardware product. And so if you don't um, have really strong customer insights about what you're going to build, uh, then you're going to build a product no one wants and you're going to waste a lot of money doing it. And um, it's true that if you build something no one wants in software that you will also waste a lot of money doing that. But um, the dynamics of hardware, like the stakes are just even that much higher. Um, and so these companies actually are great at, at talking to customers, running structured interviews. I think um, I would call all of that upstream marketing. 
And I think what manufacturers have historically focused less on is downstream marketing. So like using those same insights to um, make content and make ads and um, uh, uh, change the copy on your website, right? Or or make your sales decks better. Like I just think they put less thought and effort into that maybe compared to um, a software startup. Uh, but like the insights is in a lot of ways, like the hardest part, right? So if you can do that well, um, then all you have to do is kind of like apply it then to the downstream stuff. Um, so I think that's the biggest opportunity for manufacturers. I think the biggest opportunity for startups is to learn to get the voice of the customer inside your business the way these big established manufacturing companies like Hilti uh, do. Hilti is a great example. I learned everything I know about customer research from people that grew up at Hilti. Um, so shout out to them. Um, and then the other thing I'll just throw out there for consideration is um, I would counsel manufacturing companies not to just like look at what startups are doing and copy them. Because uh, for example, many software startups that are VC backed are spending like a hundred percent of their revenue on marketing and sales and they're burning cash. Right. And there are reasons that in the startup model, that kind of aggressive market penetration and spending makes sense. Um, but in the established manufacturing model, it doesn't make sense. You have to spend a much smaller percentage of your um, revenue on on marketing and sales because you probably want to be profitable and because you need to take into account a much different gross margin than um, than a software company. Typically, software companies have super high gross margins. Manufacturing companies can have high gross margins, but they might also have low gross margins. So if you're a marketer in an industrial company, you really need to think about that and think about um, the overhead dollars that you have at your disposal and what what the best way to uh, effectively spend those is because it might not be to just copy what you see Colab doing, right? Uh, some really great uh, points there, MJ. I remember uh, a few years ago attending a, a conference. It, it was hosted by McKinsey and it was in, in, in Stockholm and there was a manufacturer that developed seats uh, for, for Volvo. Uh, and they were already looking at entirely redesigning seats for when cars become completely autonomous because the seat design today is really geared for somebody to drive a car. And now they're talking about seats potentially swiveling 360, de I mean, 360 degrees. And I think we all agree we're still years and years away from that. But the amount of customer research and testing they were already doing, very indicative of, of how manufacturing mindset is. You don't get too many second chances the way you do in 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 software, right? Amazon puts out a software update every eight seconds. Uh, manufacturers have to plan eight years like ahead, and 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 that's sort of the difference in dynamics we're dealing with. Uh, and you bring up a really good point about the emphasis. A lot more, I think, of product marketing goes into in, into manufacturing versus some of the other ones that startups have have probably perfected better, like the demand gen and growth side, which which kind of segues into like as these manufacturers are looking to like shift, like you know, the, the age old sort of bane of marketers attribution. Uh, how do you, you know, do you guys have any, you know, tactics or projects you'd like to talk about to just help out with attribution from a world where you've really gone around, you know, hey, it's very centered around events. It's, it's very centered around market research. Um, you have, you keep going on that one, like MJ, you probably have experienced it both from being in the manufacturing side and now in the software supplier selling the manufacturing side of things. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned events. I think um, events, like you don't have to overcomplicate it. I think like most companies execute like post-event follow-up very poorly. <laughs> um, like we at Colab executed our first couple of post-event follow-ups very poorly. Um, 
I think you need to like make sure that you, when you're there at the show, it's really crazy. Um, when you're there at the show, just like take good notes the minute you have a conversation. Is this person really like a hot lead or are they someone that, you know, we should, you know, continue to nurture with content, right? Because frankly, like most people that you're going to talk to at a show, they're someone you should just nurture with content and start to build a relationship over time. Um, well, I think what people don't realize is that if you're at a trade show, like the bar for getting someone to talk to you is artificially lower, right? Because they're there, like they're in person. It's hard to be like hard to, you can't go someone in person. Um, and like most people that are going there are self-selecting into like talking to vendors and, and listening to talks and like seeing what's new. Whereas when they're at home um, or they're at their office at home, uh, they're, you know, dealing with the day-to-day -day issues and putting out fires. So they're not in that mindset. So um, if you happen to connect with someone and talk to them at a trade show, I think what you need to realize as a marketer is that that probably means less than if they decide while they're at home and also putting out fires to proactively reach out to you, or even if they decide to take your outbound call right in the middle of all of that, because um, because that bar is artificially lower, you need to be really careful about um, how you segment out that follow-up because you're going to get some hot leads, but not as many of them are going to be hot as you think. Um, and then you should kind of do a retroactive, I would say like three months after that trade show um, in order to like go back and look at, okay, what, what, would, how did these things actually play out? Because I think three months is a good timeline to understand how many of these became real opportunities and how many were just like conversations where they thought there might be a spark of something there and it didn't, it kind of fizzled out. Um, only then I think, can you understand from an attribution perspective, the true value of a trade show? And I realized there was a lot more to your question than that, but I wanted to unpack that one systematically and then maybe we could tackle the rest later. <laughs> no, that, that, that's great. I think, um, you know, the, the follow-up in, in across every industry, I think event follow-up is, is the, the bane of every marketer just hoping that, you know, you, the amount of effort you put in it, it all, it's all for naught if you don't have like that effective follow-up. So that, that's something I think that's near and dear to every marketer across industries, um, in terms of uh, channels outside of like events, though, what do you see in like working uh, working for you in terms of like finding like your audience? What are other like uh, communication channels that are working for you? Uh, LinkedIn, uh, we love LinkedIn. We like LinkedIn paid. We like LinkedIn organic. Um, those are proven channels for us. Uh, SEO is pretty good. Uh, it's it's growing, right? You got to put a lot of momentum in the SEO flywheel before it'll really pay off for you. Um, Paid search is like less fruitful for us, but I think can be quite fruitful for uh, other companies that might be in less of a startup situation where there is already demand for your product. So probably a lot of the people on this webinar. Um, and also, I mean, recently, like once you start getting LinkedIn going, once you start getting, you know, we're doing some experiments on YouTube, once you go to a couple shows, the that all compounds and creates like a knock on word of mouth effect that um, I would say it truly takes like 12 months to get the little word of mouth afterburner booster effect. Um, but once you do, gosh, it's great because I didn't even model that into my projections. And all of a sudden, one day it showed up and I was like, oh, this is great. My uh, cost of acquisition just came way down. So uh, yeah, that's kind of what we're seeing across channels. And Grace, you're working a lot directly with with manufacturers. So um, you know, what, what are you seeing in terms of attribution and how they're looking to, to tackle that? Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, when I begin working with a client, like placing what I do in context with everything, um, you know, MJ's talked about on today's call, I, I would say that we're mostly that downstream marketing. You know, when when someone works with us, the product has been, it, it's locked in. <laughs> 
or, um, you, you know, that kind of thing. So it really, to us, it becomes like, how do we get the right messaging in front of the right people at the right time, you know, over time? So we're, we love LinkedIn. Um, you know, you're, you just can't get better in terms of firmographic targeting, job title, function, um, company. There's just nothing like it. I've seen it played out over and over. It works. Um, we also really love um, Facebook. You need to kind of layer in audience building tools on top of Facebook. Their um, job title and firmographic targeting is just like, I think I'm still a server at Steak and Shake on Facebook. Like, it, it's just not accurate. <laughs> um, but we've seen that work really well, and it's just much cheaper too. So uh, yeah, Facebook and LinkedIn, there's just nothing um, that has that scale and um, you know targeted capability. Uh, yeah, and in, in terms of attribution, I think for me, one thing... I, I'm not a huge hot take person, but maybe this is <laughs> kind of a hot take. Like, I, I don't know. I, I I think like if you're getting, you know, double 150% more inbound demo requests after we start a program um, than you were before and nothing else has changed, like, do you need direct attribution for every single demo? Like, it, 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 let's turn it off for 90 days. Let's see how that goes. So, I mean, we set up, um, you know, how did you hear about us on every form? We'll see, you know, someone coming in super hot, moves through the, you know, sales process much more quickly. Um, they say they heard about us on a LinkedIn uh, ad or whatever. We also see a lot of word of mouth, internet, web. Um, so, I, I don't know. I, I guess, like, I'll, I'll dive in. <laughs> I'll audit. Um, you know, I, I definitely want to prove what's working, what's not. But... Um, I don't lose sleep over not being able to attribute everything. So you both talked about like LinkedIn, Facebook, and are, are um, is this relatively more more recent? Uh, you in terms of uh, manufacturing being active in these? I think you know um, a few years ago we'd really think this was more confined to like startup in the software world, and some of those traditional like industries weren't as like active, and certainly don't see that level of activity. Um, um, do you see that momentum continuing to build up and and you know LinkedIn continuing to boom? And how long do you think this trend has been going? Um, MJ, you want to weigh in? You're you're yourself quite active on 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 the platform as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably is accelerating, but I still think we're in the very, very early stages of adoption, especially in manufacturing. However, I will say, that there are a ton of people in the manufacturing industry, i.e., your buyers that are on LinkedIn and they're not active and they're post they're not posting and they're not running ads, but they are definitely consuming ads and they're definitely consuming posts. Um, so we have uh, you know a bunch of uh, pipeline generated from from LinkedIn because people that don't post are looking at our ads. Um, we also have pipeline from LinkedIn from people that aren't posting but are consuming our organic content um, and people that show up to events like this one. So um, I think we're really there's still an opportunity for manufacturers to take advantage of LinkedIn as a as a channel and be an early mover. Um, and I don't think you have to worry at all that there are that your buyers aren't active there because I can tell you from firsthand experience they they are active there. Yeah, I, I mean I could go into you know. 20 something ad accounts right now and show you the reach on very targeted, um, you know, in industrial buyers, like they are there, we are reaching them. Um, it is working. I, I, I would say, um, I don't know. I, 
we, we, I feel like what we're really good at at Gorilla is just kind of like getting the right messaging in front of the right people and measuring things properly. I mean, I know a few years ago we were running more, you know, SEO type plays like your typical like HubSpot um, into uh, white paper lead gen uh, that everyone was running six, seven years ago. Um, and it worked. We just kind of were observing what we were seeing and white paper downloads over the years just aren't converting to sales anymore. And it, uh, you have to follow what works and like how people want you to get in touch with them, where their attention is. Yeah, I think, I mean, just given who we are, at six cents, right? The the white paper download represents an MQL that's not representative of your of your buying group. So that's something that's very near and dear to us here as as sort of a, a preeminent ABM vendor. Um, the lurker part is a really great point uh, you made as well, uh, uh, both of you. And right? I think do our manufacturing companies onto this? Are are they really using the platform enough? I think we tend to always bias towards the posters because we think that's the audience there, but. Uh, you're spot on, MJ. It's a lot of uh, uh, you know untapped opportunity. You may not see people in in, in manufacturing, you know, posting a, you know their 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 hot takes, uh, but they're there. They're consuming content. Um, do you do you think man, most manufacturing companies are taking enough advantage of of LinkedIn as as a channel? Um, MJ, maybe your take first, and then Grace. I'm curious to hear your thoughts in terms of what you recommend to to folks. I would say broadly, no. Uh, manufacturers have not taken enough advantage of the opportunity on LinkedIn. Like Grace said, the level of thermographic targeting at scale that you can get on LinkedIn is unbelievable. And the just like the ability to tune up and down the amount that you're spending with so much control, right? You can test LinkedIn for a few thousand dollars a month. You can't test a trade show for less than $20,000 a month if you're being really tight on your budget. Um, and so that's incredible. And um, so, I mean, I, I just don't see a real downside to trying it. Um, the The organic story is a little bit different because um, people do tend to want to follow other people with a certain amount of authority and they definitely want to follow people who are creating a lot of original content. And so basically the constraint becomes, do you have like an executive or an SME on your team that is excited about and willing to spend a significant amount of time to create a consistent enough flow of organic content to actually build an organic presence? Um, that's a fairly high bar. I think people should know that. Um, so, so I would I would say that's a real barrier um, to companies trying to do the organic side of LinkedIn. But um, the paid side, I think you can. It, most manufacturers would be surprised how easily you can test it. Um, and there's probably a lot of hanging fruit there still. Grace, are they surprised? Um, are you are you finding that an underserved channel? I I mean I I guess with LinkedIn. It's really, really, really hard to max out the impact that you can have on LinkedIn. I mean, it, I think like part of, like as an agency, you keep clients by delivering results, right? And like people don't have a, a million dollars to start out and test something. I, LinkedIn ads is just like one of the easiest quick wins you can have to like get the messaging out in front of the right people and start delivering results. Um, you know, I, I think Gorilla ourselves are like the 
our, our own best case study. You know, we have a live event that we do, you know, twice a month. We, that we post, you know, chop up post on LinkedIn. We have, you know, a, a bunch of people who post organically on LinkedIn and, and um, interact in, in communities. Um, we have three podcasts. We, so like we have this organic presence that we post on LinkedIn and are always interacting with people. And, you know, our, our deals essentially come from SEO presence that we've built over the past, you know, <laughs> 10 plus years. It's hard to get in on that game right now. Um, and LinkedIn, 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 LinkedIn is what you see when it's how did you hear about us? So um, it, it's just really, really hard to max out, I think, on on LinkedIn. Well, there's a practical takeaway. And I think a segue to um, the last question before we pivot over to the Q&A is uh, we've covered a good amount of ground here. So uh, what are some tactics given? I assume most folks here are in-house marketers at, at traditional manufacturers. Um, you know, what are just some, you know, um, practical tactics that you'd want attendees to walk away from here from? Um, MJ, let's go with you. I I do think coming back to that P&L and cash flow argument I was kind of laying out earlier, it really depends on the bucket of cash that you have available to you to um, to run with. Um, in my first uh, in-house marketing role, my budget was whatever I can get away with putting on the company credit card. <laughs> um, and so as you can imagine, I did a lot of SEO, I did some webinars, and I just like fine-tuned over and over again the copy on all of the e-commerce product pages. Because with e-commerce, super easy to tie your uh, your actions to revenue, right? And then it was like, okay, um, I'm clearly generating results here. I'm generating opportunities for the sales team with the SEO. I'm generating e-commerce revenue with the copywriting and the and the product insights. Um, uh, can I get HubSpot? <laughs> right, like it's it's you know five hundred fifty dollars a month. Can I get it? Yes, we'll we'll you know we'll make that investment. So like if you're uh, you know um, in your first marketing role or you're in a like entry to mid level role and you don't like control the purse strings. You might be in that situation that I was in, right? And and you're you have fewer options available to you, and you should lean into things like customer research, where it takes money but it doesn't take time. SEO, where it takes you know it takes your time, which obviously costs the company money, but it doesn't have you don't need to control a budget to go and do these things. I think that's the reality for a lot of uh, manufacturing marketers right now. Um, if you do have a little bit of a budget to play with, um, in my opinion. The order of difficulty um, for some of the channels that require more budget is uh, paid search is the easiest, paid social, paid LinkedIn is probably the second easiest, and maybe I should say the least hard as opposed to the easiest. And then I would say like organic LinkedIn is the the most difficult. Um, so I'd probably tackle it in, in that order um, if I had to simplify to like something very pragmatic and, and actionable here. And you know, you touched on just putting out the right content, refining in the end, you know, Put the tactics aside it always comes down to the right message right time right person i think that's what you're advocating as well grace so um some parting words from your side um yeah i i guess i'm gonna just kind of like land the plane and have a like a few like in the weeds kind of tactical things i mean going off of what mj said i think like paid search um like if your company i like love when a client starts with us and they have been running paid search because i get to come in and look like a hero um, you know, a, an example of this is, you know, I started with a client, they had thrown, I don't know, 
25K at paid search over the course of like a month and a half. And they were like, this isn't working for us. Um, went in, audited. They were bidding on like thousands of keywords all to the same landing page, not message matched. I just turned off every single keyword that hadn't driven results, message matched. And like, they're like, oh my gosh, paid search is so great. We need to scale this up. It's like, ah, uh, so great. I, I, it makes me feel um, happy inside when that can happen. Um, but I think just my experience over the last year to, um, you know, starting to work more with like it's startups. So like a lot of my experience is working with more traditional manufacturers, but, um, you know, I, I've kind of had a whirlwind experience in, in starting working with a startup, uh, came back from maternity leave in March. Um, and it was just kind of like, Hey, you have a new client, their startup go. Um, and it was a whole product launch situation. Um, I'm not going to get into it cause I could probably take up the <laughs> next half hour talking about it, but, I was just blown away by the speed with which they wanted me to operate. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Um, and so it was a huge challenge for me. But um, yeah, it was basically like, I'd be like, hey, I think you should implement calendar booking. They're like, great, it's live. And I would be like, perfect, <laughs> great. <laughs> um, you know, and so it's it just like has forced me to like really change the way I um, like think it's all about like, okay, get get points on the board earn trust. I, I think, um, you know, I don't have a lot of hills I die on as it pertains to marketing, but I think one of them is, you know, trust is earned. So, you know, kind of your, your first step is, uh, um, just like getting points on the board, earning, earning trust to be able to move quickly. Um, and I think that's the biggest takeaway I have having worked more closely with a startup than I ever have before. Um, just, I think you can steal um, kind of just, just the speed. Speed is a competitive advantage. No doubt there's, there's speed is, is uh, sort of a, a foundation of, of startups uh, for better or, or worse. Um, well, speaking of trust, I think you both certainly earned the trust of this audience. So let, let's jump into some of the Q and A, because there are some questions here for folks listening in. Uh, type in your, your your questions here. Just, we've got some time here to answer them, so uh, don't be shy. Um, I think we've got uh, you know a couple of experts here. Let's take advantage of it. Um, so let, let's get to Beth, Beth had a question here. Uh, as a manufacturing marketer who sells exclusively to distribution, what recommendations do you have to get insights back to the manufacturer? Um, MJ, you're nodding. You want to go? <laughs> yeah, um, I always uh, in all my in-house manufacturing roles, we always sold through distribution. Um, I mentioned like we we propped up an e-commerce e store as well, but I mean like a lot of products need to be serviced, right? So you're you're never going to get away from distribution unless you are willing to do the service yourself, which doesn't make sense for a lot of uh, a lot of companies. So um, the short answer here is uh, go around them and talk to the customer yourself. Um, obviously, don't like burn bridges uh, or hurt relationships um, in the process, but. Uh, I have, you know, your value proposition to the distributor is that they buy something for less money from you and then they sell it to someone else for more money than they bought it from you for, right? So um, that's a very simple value prop to understand. What you really need to understand is the value prop uh, of your of your product to the end customer. And you can, you can only really do that by talking directly to them. Um, so if your distributors are willing to help you with that... Um, and, you know, you can kind of like make the case to them for why helping you is going to help them. Um, it, at the end of the day, it's going to drive, you know, you're going to create better products for them. 
Um, you can drive more inbound leads to them, right? So there's lots of reasons that they should be incentivized to help you. So um, I'd make that case to them because obviously they have a lot of customer relationships that you can tap into, but um, either work with them or uh, do it cold. <laughs> but um, I'd say try to try to line up uh, five or six uh, customer end user calls um, one-to-one with them. Yeah, and if the distributor wants to take part in it uh, just to be there, that's fine too. Um, but uh, I would make sure that you set the expectation that you're going to be running that conversation. Yeah, I think as long as the distributor isn't concerned about them getting undercut, it only serves to benefit them because ultimately the product's improved and uh, you know better better for the distributor. Anything to add there, Grace? I think MJ said that really well. I, I don't like to talk necessarily about things I don't have direct experience in. And as unbelievable as it is, I don't have a lot of distribution experience. <laughs> Well, we've talked on the topic of, of uh, social networks as an amplification channel. I think you, you've both talked quite a bit about Facebook and Instagram. Uh, there's a question also from Beth on thoughts on Instagram. Uh, sales team, I think, is mentioning needing to be more active on Instagram, but really haven't seen much traction from manufacturers. Have either of you dabbled with that as a platform, Grace? I haven't um, really gone to Instagram. I feel like my order of operations is LinkedIn then Facebook, then I would scale to Instagram. I haven't found someone where I have maxed out the potential on the first two platforms and launched to Instagram. I, MJ, interested to hear what you have to say there. So um, I was blown away at Firetrace by uh, by how many people in the machining in, uh, industry are on Instagram. Um, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense because machining is just like cool to look at. <laughs> um, and so I think that there are industries, you'd have to figure out if this is true for your industry, but there are industries where people are really invested in Instagram. And I do think it tends to be the industries where there's like a cool visual component. Welding is another one. Um, and uh, what we found was it's kind of like it's hard to build an organic presence now on Instagram, like the, the window of opportunity has kind of passed for that. Um, but there are influencers uh, that already have the organic presence. And we did a couple of partnerships with them. Some like one time we just had a big influencer with 40,000 followers, like our system put out a fire for him and he posted the video on his Instagram without us asking. And we got a bunch of inbound from that. Um, so that was awesome. Uh, so that was like just lucky, but um, I would say it may, this might be true for you and it might not, but if that, if that happens to be true of your, um, of your industry, look for the influencers. I think the coolest case study ever of that is um, ESOB welding. Uh, and the marketing manager there created this program called ESOB elite and she like, you know, found these great welders that love the product and sent that it's just, I mean, it's the classic B2C play, but they replicated in B2B and man, their, their Instagram is so well run. So like, if you're looking for inspo, um, ESAB, ESAB is a great industrial case study. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's such a great point though. Manufacturing, unlike software, it has such a visual component to it. And depending on the type of industry you're in right there's, you know, even practical applications of how to use it. It just, it, it does stand to reason. I, I would have not thought of Instagram, but, uh, you know, putting it that way, like it, it feels like if you're in the, if you're in the right industry, it feels almost like a, like a no brainer. Uh, going to move along here. Um, in the interest of time. Um, anything you're doing specific for retention, MJ? Question directly for you. 
Um, humble brag, uh, collab does not struggle with retention. Everybody loves collab. Um, but uh, expansion is uh, is top of mind for me. Uh, I haven't, uh, I've been really focused on land, uh, not expand for the past kind of 18 months, but my sh- my focus will shift uh, to, to be more top of mind on expansion, probably starting maybe four to five months from now. I mean, I'm starting to think about it now, but really go in on it uh, at that timeline. So I'll have more information for you this time next year. Um, but one thing that I'm really excited about is um, like, field marketing ABM. So like, I think a lot of people are like ABM digital, right? But I'm like, let's make really cool content offers that um, like presentations that we can show up in person and give to a room full of people in lunch and learn style, like in the field, in person, ABM with supported by really strong content offers. It's a like, people love face-to-face interaction in industrial. It's like, it's so powerful and you learn so much, right? Um, So if you can use cool content offers in presentation form to get a foot in the door, um, that's something I'm really excited to experiment with next year. As an agency, we're pretty well measured off of net new logo business. Um, I I will say, you know, retargeting is a great way to kind of stay in in top of mind with folks who are familiar with your brand. But um, as someone who's exclusively worked in agencies, I haven't necessarily been able to play in that sandbox as much. One of the questions was on um, testing different campaign formats on LinkedIn, image ads, convo ads. Uh, what have you found really scaling in LinkedIn ads as a whole? Um, Grace, you want to, do you have, have you tried that out at all? Any experience there? Um, we use, um, our performance marketer, Kevin has kind of established a split testing framework where we kind of test different headlines, images, et cetera, just on that single image ad, um, just to be able to figure out like what types of images, what types of headlines, what types of claims, um, perform best for clients, which we cycle into kind of each iteration for, um, uh, every phase of a campaign we might run, um, we mostly have stuck with single image ads and video ads uh, rather than um, uh, carousel ads. You tend to just get a little bit less like lower click through rate. I, I like um, you know, running those depending on the specific use case of what I'm trying to educate someone about. Um, but we we mainly stay with the, um, you know, at the, you know, single image, your, your standard single image or video ads. Um, MJ, yourself? Um, yeah, I wouldn't overthink this one. Like we, uh, I think it's just easy to ship single image ads. So, uh, that's where we started and you can crush it with only single image ads. And, um, I, I tell this to people a lot when you're trying to prop up a new motion, um, and get a channel working for the first time. Um, I would make it as simple as you possibly can make it right. Like pick one persona, one use case, only single image ads, like just get used to shipping. Um, and then once you are used to shipping, then layer in the next level of complexity, whether that's retargeting or video ads or whatever you want to do. Um, I'd build it that way because it, it, it helps you avoid getting into paralysis from trying to do too many things at once. Great advice. And um, I will throw a little like shameless plug here, which wasn't my intention, but we've got a, we've got a whole community here at, at Sixth Sense that uh, over at RevCity. Uh, it's R-E-V-C-I-T-Y. And, um, Ads is a huge part of why people use uh, Sixth Sense, but we've got a creative services team 
that does do recommendations on stuff like that. Like they'll do like testing for you and 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 give advice on the types of ads that perform. So if nothing else, it's a totally free community. And there's other folks in there who've posted or if you post a question, we'll jump in and answer uh, a lot of you know other customers in this space. So you might get some good advice there as well. I know we're over time, but if you two don't mind hanging around a couple more minutes, I'd love to get through the end of that question. The questions there. Is that okay with you, Grace, MJ? Sure. Um, there's a question here on a recommendation for somebody jumping back into paid search after getting burned, not seeing results a few years ago. Uh, Grace, you talked about folks um, uh, getting burned and, and you optimizing it or some reasons why people get burned because of improper like setup. I think... You might be reading my enthusiasm as like blanket enthusiasm for paid search. It doesn't work in every instance. I, I think MJ named a few examples. I have not seen it make economic sense when you know your cost per click is above fifty dollars, because then you're just it it costs way too much to get to like a paying customer. But when you're in that kind of sweet spot of you know three to twelve dollars for high intent terms that exactly match the product you are selling go for it. If you do not, and, and and you absolutely should test it. Um, but if you don't match that, like there, you could bid on this term, but it's actually someone looking for something else. And you're trying to convince them that they should go with your, that's just not going to work for you. Um, I, I haven't seen it play out. Um, so yeah, I, th I think as long as you, um, it's reasonable cost per click, there is actually measurable search volume for what you sell and it doesn't require any convincing. It matches the intent of the search. It works every time, um, but that's not everyone that fits into that. Anything to add, MJ? Otherwise, there is another question that's specifically at you that's different from this, but I want to give you a chance to answer on this one as well. I, I don't have much to add. I would just say you would need to go back and figure out whether it failed because it was executed technically in a, in the wrong way or because it just doesn't make sense for your product in your market. Um, if it doesn't make sense for your product in your market, then there's no reason to like revive that effort. But if it, if it only failed because it was a situation like Grace described earlier, where it's like you've got uh, 50 keywords, they're all pointed to the same page and there's no message matching. That's just a technical mistake. And so you can go back and fix that and, and there's opportunity there, but um, you'd have to do some digging. Maybe you already have um, to figure out which of those scenarios you're actually in. And and keeping, keeping the mic uh, with you, MJ, uh, what do you wish marketers did more often to support product development? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people in in an industrial setting as a marketer, like you're expected to support product development. Um, and uh, and so I think most marketers in that kind of role, like it's part of how they're uh, like measured and, and their expectations in their role is to like conduct a certain number of customer research uh, calls, go visit the customers in person. Um, like when you're talking about manufacturing you got to go see that thing installed. You got to see the person trying to use it, right? To really understand, um, really understand what's going on. And and a lot of times the company will support you with like the budget to go do that kind of travel and conduct those interviews. Um, but I think my answer to this kind of questions is, question is always going to be talk directly to the customer, um, organize that customer in, interview in in a way that provides real actionable insights that your product team can then go use to build the best product possible. Uh, right at the tail end here, I'm actually going to combine the next two questions into one because they're pretty uh, interrelated on SEO. Um, you know, one is, you know, we know it's a long game. So, you know, are there any like shortcuts? Uh, and when starting out with SEO, like what's the best place to start, um, you know, 
bottom, middle, top, top of funnel? Do you go for quick wins first or lay the long-term foundation? So I think to distill it all, like what, what's the best approach? Like, do you go for quick wins and short-term results or do you really focus on the long-term foundation? Uh, Grace, you want to kick us off there? I actually started my career as an SEO copywriter. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess to me, quick wins always makes me nervous when you're talking about SEO because it typically means you're like farming off content and it's just going to be like your typical terrible like chat GPT could replace it. Um, I, I think if you're going to do SEO, like focus on quality, not quantity, um, like make one really good post, see if you rank, just kind of like prove like, does it work for you? Does your site have the like, because um, there's so much beyond just creating content, like it's site health too. So like just choose a keyword that doesn't like that. If you ranked for it, it would be great, right? The best piece of content on the internet for that. Um, and then see if you rank for it. If not, you probably need to go back, fix some site health things. Um, I, I guess I would want to start small, figure out whether it works for you. And rather than like going whole hog, like I've seen people like at the outset prescribe, like, we're going to write a hundred pieces of content in our marketing plan. It's like, uh, that's not the way to go. Um, and I've been the copywriter who has to execute on that. So I, I don't, I'll, I'll leave it there. And then if I have any other thoughts, MJ, I'll, I'll come in after you, but um, just kind of initial thinking for me. I think SEO can um, create quick results, um, but the, uh, huge results at scale uh, will always take time. Um, I'd say the two best ways to dip your foot in the water uh, would be number one, pick a long tail, high intent keyword that is near the bottom of the funnel and try to rank number one for that. And then maybe you can do that as many times as you want, but you could do it once, you could do it five times, whatever. That would be one way. Um, and then the second way would be pick one pillar um, so like a, maybe a shorter keyword that gets a ton of search volume, but it's harder to rank for and build a whole pillar around that. So you're going to build a pillar page, long piece of content, then you're going to link it out to a lot of, uh, different related topics that are longer tail keywords. Um, I love demand jump as an SEO software, uh, for planning pillars like that. Um, we did that at Firetrace. We just literally knocked out one pillar with like, a pillar page and six subtopics. And then we literally didn't touch SEO for an entire year <laughs> and it was great. Right. And then we did another pillar the next year. And I think for a scrappy marketing team that doesn't have a ton of resources, that's a totally pragmatic approach that can work. Goes back to your start slow that both of you were advocating uh, earlier. Um, last question. I think it's, it's perfectly apropos given both of you have a massive following on LinkedIn are prolific in, in what you post there and, and, and have established yourself as authorities. How do you go about encouraging execs of the C-suite to do more thought leadership type of content on LinkedIn? Um, MJ, start with you as both part of the C-suite that is active and, and maybe not always have had C-suite that are around you as active. I'm sure you have a, a point of view there. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think honestly, part of this game is just like, does this person have the personality and like the desire to write? Because <laughs> um, it's just like, it's more trouble than it's worth, honestly, to convince someone that really does not want to write, or really does not have this public facing personality to just do it. Um, 
So like, I would just decide if it makes sense for you. Um, our CEO, Adam Keating is, is a great writer um, and totally has a public facing personality. It's not that hard to get him to be active on LinkedIn. Uh, that might not be your CEO. That might not be your SME. So decide, right? It has to be a personality fit, I think at the end of the day. Um, however, uh, obviously the two things that, uh, we get from having, uh, a prolific presence on LinkedIn are number one, uh, pipeline sales opportunities. Um, you can also like nurture, uh, existing customers, right? They're often following you even more than prospects might be. Um, so yeah, there's like, there's a sales side of it, but I think the talk, the, the less talked about side of it is recruiting. Um, I posted a, a job on LinkedIn on Monday. And we got like a hundred applicants from from that job that post, right? Um, and so uh, I think people probably undervalue the uh, importance of having a personal brand to support recruiting, and they might just look at it through a sales lens. I I would say it's funny that you say I post prolifically on LinkedIn because that's a I, I the the lens I would take is um, I am the person that was convinced. <laughs> Um, recently. So I, I feel like about a year ago, it was like, no one made me post on LinkedIn, but it was, there were a lot of conversations where I was like, it would really be better if, um, and I, I feel like for me, comfortability came from like observing other people at the company, um, from the top down posting on LinkedIn, seeing the, the benefits, um, you know, one of my accountabilities is making sure that we're able to fill seats when, um, you know, things roll through. And, and now like when I do post about a role, I have a, a million people DMing me and, um, yeah, so I'm going to keep on posting on LinkedIn, but it, it really comes from observing other folks and like seeing the benefits tangibly manifest for them in terms of recruiting, um, revenue, et cetera. MJ Grace, thanks so much for obliging us and staying on extra. Much appreciated. I see hardly any audience drop off during the time. So um, everyone's, uh, myself included, really enjoyed this session. Uh, really appreciate your time and uh, hope we can do this again soon. This has been really fun. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thanks for having us.